It's Thursday, February the 23rd, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, and I'm just one of several fellows who are doing podcasts these days, and I encourage you to go to our website and check it out. Uh, our website is hoover.org. You click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Scroll over to where it says multimedia, and up will pop the podcast. You can subscribe to any or all of them if you'd like. You can also sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers our best of our podcasts your inbox each and every month. My guest today is Tomasz Blusevich. Tomasz Blusevich is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and historian of modern Europe and Russia with an emphasis on the intersection of economics, trade, and politics in the Baltic Sea region. Between 2017 and 2022, he served as a history professor at the University of Tumin, which is located in Western Siberia. There he helped to establish the only remaining English-language liberal arts college in Russia, the School of Advanced Studies. In March 2022, Tomasz Blusevich resigned for that university position in protest against the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As February the 24th marks, or will have marked, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, the one-year anniversary of that invasion, I thought it'd be worthwhile to get his thoughts on where the conflict stands and what may lay ahead for his native Eastern Europe. Tomasz, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Bill. Uh, It's a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for the introduction. You're welcome. And to anybody who's listening to this in Eastern Europe, I apologize if I did not get Tomasz Blusevich exactly correct. I'm trying to do my best with my English language, trying to translate Eastern Europe. So bear with me, folks. So looks perfect. Thank you very much, sir. So let's start this. Let's go back to March of uh, uh, to February of 2022. Uh, let's go back to February 24th of last year, actually, Tomasz. Ed, did you learn of the invasion that day? I did in the morning. I uh, I just woke up and grabbed my phone and and saw the headlines uh, in the morning, <clears throat> and of course, as many people, I didn't really expect it. At least I didn't expect the the scale of the invasion. So I was taken by surprise, and of course, that day uh, has changed a lot in my life because it consolidated my decision to leave Russia as soon as possible because. Uh, I didn't feel uh, secure anymore, uh, given all that was going on around with unwarranted arrests and detentions of American citizens. The case of Brittany Griner was uh, in the news back then. So, yes, I remember that day vividly. Mm -hmm. And it's not a good memory, of course. And the average Russian would have learned about the invasion the same day, but I imagine they would have learned it through state media, perhaps. And the state media would have broadcast it as what, not an invasion, but uh, Mm -hmm. liberate Ukraine from neo-Nazis, right? Yes, the official term is Spetsyalna Vajenna Operacja, which means special military operation, which is the term kind of used up until today, even though if you say war in the media, I don't think uh, initially, if you said war, you would could be arrested and actually sent to prison. Now, the rhetoric has changed. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has in his uh, speech two days ago, not only two days ago, but also earlier, he paints the whole conflict as a existential struggle with the West. So I think it's OK now to use the word war. But you're right. Initially, um, there was also this news about a ban to publish any non-state accredited information. And there were these new laws introduced in Russia about discrediting the army mm-hmm. and essentially 
relying on non-state validated sources. So yes, of course, many Russians, uh, especially in my circle, so to speak, uh, you know, it was an English-speaking university. So of course, everyone was connected to the internet and used various channels. Like in Russia, uh, a big social media platform is Telegram. And so they're still connected there, but also Instagram among my students, all of my students were on Instagram. So you could learn it from there as well. But you're right. Most ordinary Russians would hear it probably on the TV or on the radio in the morning. Uh, out of curiosity, you are uh, Polish by birth. How many languages do you speak? Right. I'm Polish by uh, birth. I was born in communist Poland in 1987. I speak Polish, English and Russian. Uh, I, I actually taught in Russian uh, a few courses there, and my wife is Russian. And we speak Russian mostly at home with our daughter, surprisingly. I am also able to understand German, but I don't speak it fluently, though. Okay. Um, let's uh, go back to uh, to Russia for a second here. I saw a news story last month. The university student in Tumen was uh, arrested, and she was later sentenced to three years in prison for posting a video online condemning the Ukraine invasion, I think. Uh, eventually, um, her sentence was knocked down to 18 months. They took time off since she was in jail. But this does raise a question as to what, if any, free speech there is in Russia. What what can university students do to protest the war? Mm -hmm. Well, so when I came to Russia, of course, I knew what kind of regime it was. I, I had no illusions there. But there was a degree of free speech that was tolerated. And there were these, you know, radio stations, for example, Echo Moskvy, Echo of Moscow. There were some newspapers, Novaya Gazeta, uh, which I kind of called token uh, free speech kind of uh, remnants. I think the Kremlin wanted to keep it just to show to the world that, hey, we have opposition newspapers, but they have been shot, of course, after the invasion. So when I came, you know, uh, in academia, I would say, I wouldn't, uh, I didn't see much interference initially. Uh, I could research whatever topics um, I wanted to. I actually came to Stanford uh, for a conference on the 100 years of Baltic independence. That was in 2018. It was held at, um, at Stanford here and it included some prominent guests, foreign ministers from the Baltic states. And the university uh, didn't mind me going. I'm, I mean, they didn't say anything so you know it was relatively free in that sense but things have changed markedly uh, first after Navalny's poisoning mm -hmm. that was August I believe in uh, 2020 then COVID came which became the, the major topic you know for um, for everyone and then of course after the war I think this switch from from repressive regime to a totalitarian one uh, has been rather um swift and rather um all encompassing i would say it was pretty dramatic in that yeah. sense so now there's no freedom of speech whatsoever so let me throw a hypothetical at you let's suppose that you did not leave um the university let's suppose you're still teaching in western siberia and let us suppose that on the one year anniversary of the invasion that the new york times the washington post the los angeles times the wall street journal an American publication asks you to write about the war and the mood in Russia, and you write a very critical piece about the war in Putin. What would happen to you? So here, what we need to understand is that, you know, the censorship in Russia is 
pretty uh it's oppressive but it's also selective so the article would have to be noticed the article would have to you know reach the kremlin or reach some visibility mm-hmm. um so it depends on that if it reached you know significant visibility of course if it's new york times automatically it does right. <laughs> no question about that so i would be fired the next day uh absolutely yeah, and because because i'm a historian and i taught courses on the european union i actually was the director of a master's program there in international relations uh, i just could not uh, avoid you know certain topics like for example i had colleagues there who are philosophers and they're still there uh philosophers from italy for example um you know they can teach the philosophy course uh without issues of course and there's no obvious reason for them to comment on the current situation right Mm -hmm. so but given my area of um specialty of course uh yes an article like that would automatically lead to probably deportation and how do you suppose tomash how do you suppose students at that university are processing this war this is not the first time russians have had to uh, model a war and perhaps maybe not a popular actually i don't know if the war is popular or not within russia itself you could um, address that better than me but for example you would have had russian university students back in the early 1980s uh uh, lady 1980s excuse me dealing with afghanistan uh not a popular war for russia back then so the russian kids right now those kids in school right now how do you think they're looking at this and because uh, I'm asked this because these are obviously educated kids. These are these are kids who I assume have access to news outside of Russia, so they can process this on several levels. Right, Bill. Thank you for this question. I have so many things to say about this that I don't even know where to start. I'll start by saying I wrote an article recently about this in Russian, and I pub- published it on an Instagram platform called Doha, which is a student-run kind of a newspaper and it has you know it's pretty big it has more than 100,000 followers on Instagram and most of my students follow it and I wrote I wrote an extended essay about 5,000 words about that so uh, those of the listeners who can read Russian can go there I'll try to have it translated into English sometime soon uh, but in a nutshell I'll start by saying that when I came to Russia I was surprised by the radical moods of the students um you know i could see it in the way they dressed you know the subcultures there they were all um you know being pro putin among people who were 1820 was the most passe and <laughs> unfashionable thing you could be uh, and, and actually there were some situations at the university there were some trade union organizing and so on where I wasn't fully involved in supporting student movements, uh, so to speak, grassroots movements, mostly because I couldn't do it because this could lead automatically to me being kicked out from the university. Mm-hmm. So initially, uh, some students actually had uh, maybe not, um, well, complaints, but they were slightly disappointed that I didn't support their anti-regime activities and their their mood, overall mood stronger, right? Uh, but then, uh, of course, things have changed. As I said, after Navalny's poisoning, there were significant protests in Russia, in which actually uh, my wife's brother, who's now 23, he was 20 then, so he was like a third-year student, 
he participated in that. I remember um, myself and my wife calling him, kind of advising him to be very careful because uh, he would get phone calls from the administration of the university saying, you know, if you go on that march, there were these marches. It was, I think, after Navalny got back from Berlin. Right. In January, I believe, 21. Um, there were these marches and he participated in them and a lot of students participated. And, you know, some of them faced consequences. Mm, some students, a few of them were, so to speak, um, few of them were actually kicked out from the university. But it would, this was not a massive or kind of totalitarian repression yet. More kind of, you know, finger waving and, and warning towards students uh so the students in russia certainly are the more the most vocal the most active the most uh engaged group in russian society that uh, you know both in terms of protests both in terms of online activity um, visibility they are the people who, who organize the protests more than anyone else um, one other thing I would say is that, yes, um, the college where I thought, where, where I taught, excuse me, was a kind of a special place because you had to know English very well to get there. Right. Uh, but I also taught at the main Russian university, just, you know, kind of think of a, you know, Arizona state in the U.S., a mainstream kind of, you know, state funded and not state like Arizona, but um, state, federal state in Russia, mm-hmm. under the university. And there, uh, the this mood of kind of, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, pro-Western attitudes. Uh, in, the young, in the young students, you, you see this, you know, not so much in their ideology yet, but in their, you know, preferences in clothing, music. I always told my friends, I don't know anyone in Russia, for example, listens to Chinese music or, or watches Chinese films. Uh, Korean music, yes, right? Japanese culture, not to mention Hollywood, of course, and, and uh, American pop culture. So um, you see this um, by, by their kind of cultural choices, right? Right. Um, so the state university, they had groups of students who were um, active in Kremlin-sponsored kind of uh, youth organizations, so to speak, there was a small group, right? So there, one had to be more careful with them, for example, because this is a real story. One time I was reported by one student to my dean, so to speak, that, you know, I talked uh, about Stalin, Stalin's repressions, um, kind of in a, according to the student, in an aggressive and offensive to, to Russia, I don't know, uh, way. Anyways, I was kind of um, not warned because my dean is also a person of liberal views, but kind of I was given to understand that there are some students who might report me to the authorities for giving a history class on the Gulag, for example. Well, it's not like, you know, talking about Gulag was forbidden in Russia, but talking about it in a certain way where you accuse the Soviet state of being, of committing you know, crimes against humanity or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, this could get you in trouble. Um, but as I said, before the war, most academics would not really be uh, face any disciplinary measures for doing something like that. 
you would have to attack the Kremlin directly. But after the war and all this um, interest in uh, what's in Russia, what's called in Russia, um, history politics, right? Now uh, we see more and more um, recently, for example, in Volgograd, uh, there were um, commemorations of the Stalingrad battle and Vladimir Putin came. Right, and they renamed, they right. renamed the city Stalingrad. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, they uh, they also um, established a monument to Stalin just next to a monument to the victims of of the repressions. I don't remember the exact details, but I think that's uh, that's true. So you see this turn towards uh, <clears throat> glorifying certainly Soviet war effort. I mean, it's been there earlier, but now also kind of whitewashing Stalinist crimes and uh, right. And forgetting about that part, right? So Putin went to Volgograd. This was the 80th anniversary of the uh, the end of the uh, the battle with the Nazis in Stalingrad. And uh, on Thursday, he was um, celebrating uh, Defender of the Fatherland Day in Russia. This used to be, right. I think, called uh, the Soviet Army and Navy Day, and Putin renamed that to uh, Fatherland Day. And I yes. uh, news reports are correct. I think 70,000 people turned out, and Putin apparently had to pay a bunch of people to come out and celebrate. Um, one final question about Russia, then I want to move on to Poland and the Baltic states, Dimash. Um, is there a historic parallel here that Vladimir Putin may be looking at? And that parallel would be Lyndon Johnson in America in the 1960s, and that Johnson uh, suffered great damage politically um, due to the Vietnam War uh, with college-age Americans in particular. And the problem with college-age Americans back in the 1960s were that, number one, they didn't buy the rationale for the war. The government said that this is about containing communism, but college-age students didn't see it that way. But then secondly, Tomash, they took it personally because they had young men their age dying in Vietnam. Um, so this is what this is what really spawned campus unrest, and it really undermined Johnson's presidency so much so he did not run for re-election in 1968. I'm not going to talk about Putin leaving office because of this, not running for another term, if you will. But the question would be, if a situation like the war with Ukraine, now a year old, and showing no signs of ceasing, just becoming more and more of a, of a bloodletting between two nations – if you can see a Vietnam parallel here where college-age Russians, the ones whose peers are, are losing their lives in Ukraine, if this unrest starts to, to build up. Right. Uh, well, first of all, as you have mentioned, the parallel uh, doesn't work in a sense that Putin doesn't face any elections. Right. And, so, the, and, the, and the second parallel right. would be one, obviously, of just free speech, whereas in America, a student right. can go out and do everything from protest to lie in the street to burn a flag if they so choose. But... Yes, but uh, so the verification for, or uh, let's let's put it this way, well, the factor that will determine whether this resistance among young people is big enough is the battlefield. Yes. It depends on uh, how successful uh, Putin's regime is in conscripting, continuing the conscription, and we've seen, uh, and this is hundred, we can say it with hundred percent certainty, Putin's regime did not want to uh, go ahead with this uh, mass conscription that they eventually did in September. Mm -hmm. They waited for that moment uh, until the last possible uh, moment, so to speak, after the defeats they have suffered near Kharkiv. So, and they still don't want to, they called it a partial mobilization. They still don't want to announce a real mobilization kind of World War II style precisely because of these reasons. 
So uh, the um, balance here, the equilibrium is, is, you know, Russia is still a pretty populous country, 145 million people. And um, the question is, how many young people are going to uh, be willing to go and fight in Ukraine? So far, we see that the first wave of mobilization was by and large successful. I mean, a lot of young people have left, but, uh, you know, 200, 300,000, maybe even half a million, we don't know exactly, uh, young Russians were mobilized. So half a million people is a lot of new soldiers. So it depends on, 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 the, on the numbers, right? If the resistance uh, spreads, so to speak, from the, um, because who are the people who have left uh, Russia, let's say in the past year? It's people who can find um, employment in other countries. So it's usually well-educated people, often with IT skills or some other you know, hard science skills that are easily transferable and they can just work from their laptop, let's say in Georgia or in Turkey. Mm-hmm. Or Kazakhstan. It's people who know languages. My wife always tells me, and this is uh, a, a statistic verified by the Russian state, only about 20% of Russians have what they call a foreign passport. They have two passports in Russia. Internal one, which is just kind of an ID card, right. and a foreign passport. And only about 20% of Russians have it, which means only about 20% of Russians might have been abroad, right? Mm-hmm. So there is this big pool of Russians who don't have that opportunity and the resistance or the unwillingness to go to war uh, among them is still, I would put it this way. I see no enthusiasm for this war mm-hmm. apart from some uh, groups like the Wagner mercenaries and some, you know, extreme extremists, I would say, or just young guys who really want to go to war. There are, there are people like that, but by and large, most Russians, especially in those distant republics like um, Buryatia, which is behind them, uh, Baikal Lake, uh, I actually have friends there. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to go to that war, but they don't really have a choice because if they if they don't, they will have problems at home. You know, they will be kicked out from their job. Their family will not get an apartment in a communal building. And so on and so forth. And they don't have the luxury to think, hmm, should I take the next train to Istanbul and work from, you know, for an IT company there? Or mm-hmm. should I maybe go to Ukraine? So they go there unwillingly and, you know, they are dying in big numbers. And it's a very sad story. But the resistance in the broad masses, so to speak, it's not a beautiful term, but let's use it, is uh, the, the active resistance is so far um, not strong among those people, right? And one other thing I I would say is that what differentiates Putin's regime from Stalin's regime is that Putin's regime actually lets people leave Russia. They heap abuse on them, call them traitors and so on. There's even been talk, I think Dmitry Medvedev proposed, you know, confiscating their property, Mm -hmm. but they let them go, interestingly, right? Uh, that would not have happened under Stalin. Okay. Let's uh, shift and let's talk about your homeland, if uh, if you will, uh, Poland. Where, where were you born in Poland? Uh, in a small town right on the border with Belarus. So uh, there is a city in Belarus called Brest. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a place uh, maybe known to some listeners who uh, 
known World War II story. Brest-Litovsk, Brest right? Yes, exactly. Or the, where the peace treaty was signed in 1918. So I was born on the other side of the river, which is now in Poland, this small town, Teresko, right on the border with, uh, with Belarus. Mm-hmm. And I grew up there as well. So Poland joined NATO in 1999. It joined the European Union in 2014. Tomasz, I have... Uh, 20, in uh, 2004. 2004, excuse me. Uh, I have friends who do business in Warsaw. They fly back and forth frequently. And um, I talked to one of them before doing this podcast. And he said, here's how I view Poland. He said, I call, this, I call Poland the Texas of Europe. And I okay. said, why? And he said, because you go there and it's sort of like being in Texas. People are very welcoming. Uh, people are very entrepreneurial. There's kind of a kind of just sort of a wide open feeling there, and they're very fond of Westerners. I'm curious if you believe this the same in terms of trusting Westerners, and if there is a trust of the Westerners and embrace of the West. When did this come about? Because if I know my Polish history correctly, Poland traditionally has been a rather homogenous uh, nation, and it's always been in a very difficult spot on the map, caught between great powers. So, so explain today's Poland. Wow, that's <laughs> you're asking me for a lot, but let's start with Texas. Yeah. First of all, I wish we had so much oil and other natural resources. <laughs> that would have been great. <laughs> would have helped us to uh, be less dependent on Russia in, in many ways. <clears throat> Welcoming for Westerners. Um, I, th- I would say uh, when you go to Warsaw, uh, what you see is definitely a pro-business attitude of most people. You know, Poland is one of the most dynamic economies. Uh, after 89, I think a few countries, uh, definitely in Europe, but even in the world, um, have grown so fast. There is a book written about it by my friend at the World Bank, Marcin Piątkowski, Poland, the growth champion. And that's true. And if you go to Warsaw, you see it, you know, the skyline looks, uh, the skyline of Warsaw looks, uh, no, no less shabby than, uh, than let's say, uh, Dallas or even uh, Houston, right? So a lot of new skyscrapers, uh, a lot of new investments in infrastructure. So in this sense, uh, I think Poland is also very, um, at least let's call it Warsaw. Warsaw is very, um, let's call it neoliberal in their economic, let's just call it conservative in economic views, uh, kind of like Texas, you know, open to business, open to foreign investment as well. Uh, Not sure about the cultural parallels. You mentioned being welcoming or trusting of Westerners. Uh, Well, here, I think the analogy with Texas stops because it doesn't work anymore because the Polish history, as you mentioned, is it's just right. uh, it's it's a whole different story. So, you asked me when did this Polish welcoming or sympathy or uh, embrace of the West start? I would say it has never left Poland or abandoned Poland. You know, Poland was um, accepted Christianity from the West. I mean, it came through the Holy Roman Empire and through the Czechs actually in the 10th century. So Poland has always been, you know, a part culturally of the Western core, right? And this kind of differentiates it from, let's say, uh, Ukraine, which, of course, receives Christianity, as we all know, from Greece. And, of course, Greece is also part of Western civilization. But after the fall of the Roman Empire, we all know the story, right? Western, Mm -hmm. Eastern Roman Empire. So uh, I would start with that. But then, of course... uh, Mm, 
well, quick, quick uh, uh, run through 10 centuries, World War II, and Poland finds itself occupied by uh, the Soviet Union. And then I would say this uh, sympathy or this um, outlook that combined, you know, hope and kind of trust and, uh, and this dream of being kind of liberated from the Soviet repression you know, all these emotions that were there in the Polish nations, they really focused on the United States, right? Right. Because remember, during World War II, uh, in 1939, uh, Poland had alliances with uh, Great Britain and France. And then, even though Britain and France declared war on Germany, it didn't help Poland much, right? So uh, the trust towards European powers in Poland got kind of little undermined, Um not completely, though, because, of course, Britain and especially Britain, France, maybe less so, uh, did a great deal to help pop the Polish cause. Unfortunately, uh, World War II ended, the fronts of World War II ended, you know, in Germany. So there was physically no way uh, Poland could have been liberated by the Western powers. So after 1945, whenever someone thought about the possibility of... of uh, uh, of ending communism in Poland, your thoughts would turn to the United States because, of course, this was uh, the only power who could help Poland do that, right? So, mm-hmm. mm, <clears throat> so it was a kind of a psychological process, even for those Poles who didn't know much about the United States, uh, its history. You know, for example, most Polish people would not know that you know, Texas became a separate republic and there was a war with Mexico in the 19th century and so on. So, um, but just because uh, America was uh, in confrontation with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, uh, of course, hopes of most of Polish people turned towards uh, the United States. Uh, And then after 89, Poland was given a chance to actually become a part of of the western alliance system of the western economic zone of the free movement of people capital and ideas in the european union and it has greatly benefited poland Uh, i think poland is uh, a country where support for the eu as an institution or as an idea is uh, one of the highest in europe and for a good reason because um, you know, an idea like Brexit in Poland wouldn't fly because right. uh, too many people just have seen in their in their daily lives, in, in their ability to, for example, work in, in, in Western Europe and uh, travel freely and just uh, the development of Poland over the last 30 years has been amazing. I've seen it myself. Mm-hmm. I actually, <laughs> we complained before this podcast about infrastructure in the Silicon Valley. Sometimes I even point to Poland as a country with better infrastructure than the Silicon Valley. If you look at availability of internet, new highways, new trains, fast speed trains, and all that, it, it actually looks more impressive than Caltrain, that's for sure. Right. What Tomasz is, refer- what, what, what yeah, is referencing is that we're... We're doing yeah, this pod. Yeah. We're doing this podcast. Uh, I'm I'm uh, in my office, but Tomasz is actually sitting in an automobile right now because his home nearby does not have Wi-Fi. Because we had uh, windstorms, which took mm-hmm. out the Wi-Fi. 
at least two days ago, I think, and he still doesn't have Wi-Fi. And what we're joking about is that this is the great irony of living inside Silicon okay. Valley. We'd expect the best in technology, but not always so. Uh, Tomasz, this is not 1939. Poland has not been invaded. It doesn't find itself caught uh, between two uh, two powers. Um, but it does find itself in the middle of the war. And at least this regard, uh, you have had Ukrainian refugees pour into Poland. At the same time, weapons are being moved uh, across the Polish border into Ukraine. Uh, question for you. How sustainable of a position is this for Poland? It all depends on Western resolve and support. Mm -hmm. Because Poland can maintain the level of support for Ukraine, both humanitarian, but also uh, military, economic, logistical. If there is political will and the means to do it, especially in Washington, but also in, in Berlin, in Paris, in London, and other European countries, and in the neighbor, neighboring Eastern European countries, the so-called Bucharest Nine. We just had a meeting yesterday, right, with uh, Joe Biden meeting with nine Eastern European uh, leaders. So Hungary, Baltics, uh, right, Romania, and Czech Republic, Slovakia. So if there is this coalition, right, and the will of that coalition to maintain support for Ukraine, as President Biden says, for as long as it takes, is there. Uh, Poland has no reason to uh, to feel threatened or feel like it won't be able to maintain this level of support. I would say to the contrary, Poland is ready to do more. It's just, uh, uh, as Anne Applebaum, uh, one of the best experts on the region um, says, you know, um, Poland has done a great deal, uh, but uh, Poland is also a little worried about this mm, incremental level of support to the Ukraine. And every time there is a discussion about new weapons that Ukraine needs, tanks, now fighter jets, there's so much uh, feet dragging and so much going back and forth, especially in Europe, right? That right. this is what worries Poland, that uh, because European countries, Western countries are democracies, unlike Russia, there might be a change in the mood of the people, especially in Europe, where, you know, inflation is much more serious. The cost of living crisis is much more serious than in the US, primarily because of energy crisis. So there is a worry that uh, the European peoples, especially those who are further away from Ukraine and don't see uh, an existential reason to really uh, support Ukraine to such a degree that Poland does. And that's understandable. A country like Spain or Italy, you know, uh, why voters there would care so much. I mean, most voters care about Ukraine, but it's a question of the degree, right? If right. your energy goes up by 300 percent, as it did in some European countries, then you have a problem because this is very fertile ground for parties that advocate making some kind of a deal with Russia. So this is what worries Poland. Right. And I think you're going to see this play out to an extent uh, in the 2024 presidential election here, Tomas, where at least during the Republican primaries, you're going to have some candidates raising questions as to America's priorities. You already have this kind of uncomfortable line coming out of the president's visit to Poland, where uh, one lawmaker commented that he went to Poland, but he did not go to Ohio to uh, 
to uh, you know to observe a train wreck that had happened. In other words, the president doesn't right. have his eye on his own country. Uh, speaking of other countries, let's now shift to the Baltic states, uh, an area that you've studied very much. Uh, let me give you a little anecdote here, um, Tomasz. Mm-hmm. But de- about a decade ago, I took a, a Baltic cruise, uh, really wonderful two week cruise that left uh, England. And it was a highlights cruise, and uh, it included stops in uh, Sweden and Denmark and and Norway and Finland. Um, the big prize was going to St. Petersburg, which if you look at most American cruise ships now, they don't go to St. Petersburg. Apparently, this is one of the casualties of the war. Um, but there was also a stop in Estonia in Tallinn. And uh, it was a one-day stop, and uh, a lot of the places we visited on the Highlights Tour, you might expect. We went to a 16th century nuttery. We went to a very quaint old fishing village to see how Estonians used to live. Uh, we saw the modern side of Estonia, very nice outdoor cafes to sit in the sunshine and have a beer, uh, onion-domed um, churches abounding and so forth. But we also went by a rather uh, rocky beach and noticed a sign next to the beach, Tomasz, and the sign read, and I'm going to butcher the Estonian here, it read Kuri Koer, K-U-R-I-K-O-E-R, Kuri Koer, which I think literally translates to evil dog. And what the <laughs> what the guide said was that these signs were littered along the beaches of Estonia during the Cold War. And what they were telling the population was, don't even think about making a dash for the water and trying to get out of here. Uh, I mentioned this okay. because here you have a country that was uh, what, absorbed by the Soviets in what, 1940, I believe. Um, now no longer right. Soviet republics, but here they sit next to Russia. And a few years ago, if you and I were having this conversation about Putin, we might have been talking about his ambitions with regard to the Baltics, but we don't talk about that right now. We talk about Ukraine, but let's now shift to the Baltics. Does Putin still have designs on those states? Uh, excellent question, uh, Bill, and what an anecdote. Indeed, uh, the Baltic Sea was seen uh, by the peoples of the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, as this uh, bridge to the West. And indeed, there were many uh, contacts and many exchanges and trade and ferries going to um, to Sweden. And actually, it was not so rare. It's not like the Baltic peoples were actually held in a prison by the Soviets. Actually, Tallinn was one of the most visited by foreign tourists uh, capitals in the Soviet uh, capitals of republics in the Soviet Union. So it was kind of, the Soviets wanted to build a a kind of a model um, republic, especially out of Estonia. And they really liked inviting tourists to Tallinn. They've built a few few of the best hotels in the Soviet Union were in Tallinn. Uh, But indeed, if you thought about leaving Estonia, and this goes back to my earlier point about Putin actually allowing dissidents just to go, uh, you couldn't do it. Uh, I mean, you could do it. You could still board a ship and just never go back. But then, um, you know, the Soviet state could go after you and they could go after your family. Right. Right. So it was not a big deal if you were just alone and had no relatives and family and friends. But who who was like that? No one. So it was always a a tricky thing. You could leave alone because there were these connections. uh, Trade ships were merchant ships were going back and forth. But of course, the, the Soviet state would go after you. Now, uh, the Baltic states are obviously very small. So there, uh, if Putin decided to invade, if there is no NATO troops there on day one of the invasion, 
it's not like um, the Bolts have a lot of space to retreat, like kind of Ukraine fortunately had, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Ukraine is kind of too big to be swallowed by Russia uh, initially. And that's one, uh, one reason why I was surprised with the invasion and so were many people because I was trusting the Western intelligence data about how many troops the Russians had. And I was like, that's not enough to overtake Ukraine. So I was expecting some kind of, I, I think there was supposed to be a special military operation to take Kiev and then stage a coup or something. And this actually could be much more plausible in a place like Estonia, right? Because the country is just physically so small that Russia could do it. Um, For the Balts, the Baltic Sea is very important, and I think they are very um, um, optimistic right now, or uh, I guess satisfied that they're, as they call them, larger brothers, especially Sweden, but also Finns, who are related to the Estonians, uh, it's a similar language group, that they have plans, not just plans, they have declared their intention to uh, enter NATO. As we know, there's still some unhappiness about that in Turkey, especially about Sweden, but that's a separate uh, discussion. So it looks like the Baltic Sea will soon turn into a kind of an inside NATO Sea, which for the Baltic states is, of course, of existential importance. So I think they are overall satisfied with the increasing um, NATO, uh, well, the, the, the troops that are stationed there and the political will to uh, really support uh, these countries, not just verbally, Article 5, but with real capabilities, uh, with real uh, military technology and boots on the ground to make sure Putin doesn't even think about starting a war there. Because again, actually a part of Poland where my family lives right now is called the Suwałki Gap. For those of the listeners who have not heard the term, it's the small piece of land between the Kaliningrad Oblast, part of Russia, the Russian exclave on the Baltic, and Belarus. It's about 50 miles from Belarus to uh, Kaliningrad. So, of course, uh, if the Russians wanted to, uh, they could stage a quick assault there and kind of disconnect uh, the land bridge between Poland and Lithuania, and this way disconnect the land bridge between the Baltic states and NATO countries. So Mm -hmm. this is, of course, very worrying for the Baltic states. But on the other hand, there are NATO troops stationed in the vicinity, including uh, American troops. Mm, in northeastern Poland. So this provides the necessary security. Uh, and there are NATO rotational battalions in Lithuania, mostly with German troops. Uh, this gives them confidence that uh, they will not be left alone. And as long as these nations, uh, these very small nations, have this confidence, uh, they are very happy to make the investments and, uh, you know, put in 2% of their GDP or more in, into defense mm-hmm. and really make the sacrifices necessary to deter Russian aggressions, they are happy to do it. They don't, they, they are not going to complain that, you know, this is unnecessary. The only thing they might be concerned about is the stability of especially the U.S. will to do so. And uh, after Trump was elected, Donald Trump, you know, there were some questions about this, whether his dedication to NATO is the same as it 
has been before in the United States. Now I think these after, I think uh, after the invasion of Ukraine, we see that as President Biden says, the United States and its allies stand united and determined to uh, mm, to deter Russian aggression in the Baltic and to, as long as it takes to support Ukraine for Ukraine to liberate all or most of its territory. So as long as this will is there, things are good. But again, we live in democracies. And as you have just uh, pointed out, there are events such as the Ohio train crash, which can influence election results. And then uh, something can happen that will, uh, you know, put a question mark over the cohesiveness of NATO. So this this is the source of worries, I would say, for most European, Eastern European peoples. Final question, Tomasz, and I'll let you get out of that car and enjoy some fresh Silicon Valley air. Um, here we are at the one-year anniversary of this conflict. I'm not going to ask you how much longer you think it goes, because I don't think anybody knows. It appears just right to be a very ugly war of attrition. Uh, hard to see a peaceful settlement right now without one or both sides really capitulating on, on some of the stances they've taken. The question would be not really when the war ends, I think, Tomasz, but the fear of the war expanding into other nations in Eastern Europe. So the question for you is, do you fear of the war expanding? And if so, which country should be concerned at this hour or should be countries plural? Well, so I'm going to start again with my personal experiences. So after I left Russia, I actually went to Poland where I was there for two months with my staying with my parents, waiting for all the documents and paperwork to be done for me to uh, come to the United States and start my position here at Hoover. And the fear of the war expanding was the greatest in the first few uh, weeks, where, of course, the expectation was that uh, Ukraine would fall, that uh, there would be Russian troops directly on the Polish border, that uh, Belarus would be firmly with Russia, and, you know, that Russians would just want to go on, you know, seeing the success, kind of like Hitler in 39, you know, seeing the success of the Blitzkrieg, right. they would be emboldened to um, to march further towards uh, God knows where, Berlin, or as they, you know, there are these bumper stickers in Russia that I saw many times. Uh, it says something like 1941, 45, we can do it again. And, you know, na Berlin. so let's take Berlin again. And you can hear it in Russian. Uh, right. And now after the, the Germans decided to deliver some tanks, you can hear it on Russian TV every day. You know, we should take Berlin again. But now uh, I think um, most Eastern Europeans kind of make jokes of these Russian intentions of, ta of taking Berlin because they see, you know, Russia mobilizing a lot of resources and Russia not being able to take Bakhmut for half a year. So uh, we are looking at this and we are like, well, this Russian army, the, as they called it, the second army of the world, right. might not be so uh, strong as everyone thought it was. So I would say that with every success that Ukraine has on the battlefield and with every new um, bill passed in Congress of, of American support for Ukraine, I think these worries of the war expanding actually diminish. I mean, there's one area where they do not diminish. It's, of course, the nuclear escalation. But that's a separate discussion, right? Right. Um, this is a kind of a factor that you can't put a figure or a number to it, the likelihood of it happening. It's just impossible. Mm -hmm. But right now, in terms of conventional 
war. I think, uh, no, to the contrary, we see the Russians moving their troops from Kaliningrad. They're moving their troops from the, the Finnish Karelia, right, area next to uh, Petersburg. They move everything they have to Ukraine and they're not able to take Bakhmut. So I would say no, it's actually the willingness to uh, deter Russia grows. And I think uh, the idea that, you, that this war can end by, by means of a Ukrainian victory is growing. And by, by means of doing that, you can actually limit this conflict just to Ukraine rather than it expanding. Because I think military experts would agree with me here that Ru Russia doesn't have resources now to open a new front. That right. would be uh, a big mistake unless something major ha happens in geopolitics, like let's say China decides to uh, fully support Russia militarily and you know put down all of its weight in support of Russia, then yes. But I don't think we are seeing that yet. I mean, there are some signs that Chinese are willing to do more than they have been doing so far, but hopefully they don't. And as, as long as there's no other major power supporting Russia, and as far as Western resolve and support remains strong, I would say this fear of, as you say, conflict expanding to other areas yeah. um, doesn't have uh, justification in reality. So I know two things after a year of fighting Tomash. One, um, Putin gambled and lost big in one regard. He made the calculation, as you mentioned earlier, that he'd go into Ukraine and he would decapitate the government right away. He would he would take out Zelensky. He would take over Kiev and the rest of the country would crumble. And a year later, that's obviously failed. Zelensky is still with us. Uh, Putin did not take him off the airwaves, which ties into the second issue, which is that Putin has been losing an information age war, if you will, in the images uh, that you see. Uh, for him to settle the Russian people and expanding this war and going elsewhere, I think you'd have a problem in this regard. Um, you don't see after a year of fighting any kind of mythological modern day Red Army. Instead, images wise, you see just the opposite. You see tanks being blown up. You see Russian soldiers surrendering and so forth. Uh, so Putin kind of loses on the airwaves in that regard. Social media, modern day media, he cannot control. Figure it this way. The Russians invaded, uh, the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1941. Uh, helped in part by the, you know, the image, the myth of the German, the invisible German army after what it did in Western Europe. Hard for Putin to go to the Russian people and talk about an invisible army right now, given given what's happened the past year. Right. But the problem here is that uh, if we look at World War II, 1941, everyone said that Russia is finished. Right. You know, British intelligence in August 41, German generals you know, said, you know, the Red Army has been destroyed. Now it's just mopping up operations. And here uh, we touch upon the topic of this mysterious, deep Russian psyche or soul right. that can really uh, surprise the world and do something that, you know, logically and technically seems uh, impossible. And I think this is what Putin has been trying to do for the past few months. He wants to sell this conflict and explain, you know, the failure to defeat Ukraine, which really is kind of, uh, you know, it's uh, for a Russian patriot or let's say a nationalist, it's kind of a disgrace, right? right. Ukraine, everyone said in Russia, it's not a real country, doesn't have a real army, la la la. And suddenly it turns out 
the whole might of the Russian army is not able to take, uh, not able to make any progress for the past half a year. And it's ludicrous when they celebrate, as they did, the taking of Solidar, this, uh, a town of 10,000 people, as if they took at least uh, Kiev. Right. So this looks a little uh, ludicrous. But then Putin is trying to say, well, we are not fighting Ukraine anymore. So that's why we need all these sacrifices, because we are in an existential struggle. That's what he said yesterday, an existential struggle for the very survival of our nation. And now the question is, will the Russians buy it or not? And it's difficult to say. I can't make a prediction here. If they buy into this, then we have a problem because... um, you know, the Russian society has shown historically that it can overcome the worst crisis that seems unimaginable to us. You know, the big smuta in the 17th century, so the, the Polish invasion. Uh, Russia was without a ruler for 10 years or so. Then Napoleon's invasion, right? Napoleon was in Moscow. Then World War One. they lost World War One. There was a revolution, right? It seems like Russia is kind of out from the world stage. And then 20 years later, they're a superpower, right? Right. So they have this mystical, magical uh, ability, like this phoenix from the ashes, just to rise when the circumstances seem, uh, the odds seem stacked up against them. And I'm a little afraid about this scenario. And this is what the Kremlin is trying to do, is to kind of mobilize society for an all-out war, kind of World War II style. And now the question is, will the Russians... By this, I have a hope that they will not, because there's still a difference between Napoleon taking Moscow or, you know, Hitler invading uh, in 41, where indeed uh, it was a holy patriotic war for them because Hitler was bent on destroying uh, not just the state, but he was bent on destroying or at least enslaving Slavic peoples and other peoples, right, in the region. So... Absolutely. It was the Russian people and all the peoples of the Soviet Union had a good reason to fight uh, in this war as as a matter of life and death. And here with Ukraine, I think it's more questionable. We see a lot of apathy. A lot of commentators talk about apathy of Russian society. Even these staged uh, uh, stage, uh, rallies in the Luzhniki Stadium in, in Moscow. They have to pay people to go there, and it's state functionaries. It's people who are on a state budget, so they work, let's say, for the railways or the post office. They can't say no, right? Right. So I don't see that kind of zeal because the cause of this war for Russia is just not just. And I think the Russian people feel it intuitively, and I I hope they won't buy into this whole story of, you know, the West would have attacked us anyways. The West wants to impose its norms, you know, LGBT uh, marriages and and all that, and wants to turn our children into God knows what, right? right? I think the Russian people feel that this is a fake kind of narrative, and Russia is not on the right side in this war. And I hope they won't buy into this and will not allow the regime to send more and more young people to die on the front. I hope they will wake up one day and see that this war um, has not been started for a good cause and uh, Russia is in the wrong here. So that's my my great hope. But, you know, this is a matter of human psychology. It's very difficult to make uh, predictions here. Well, Tomas, we're going to end on that uh, hopeful note. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoyed this conversation. 
Me too. Thank you, Bill. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Tomasz Blusevich is also on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Tom Blusevich. I'm going to spell that out for you. That is T-O-M-B-L-U-S-I-E-W-I-C-Z at Tom Blusevich. You can also follow his work if you sign up for Hoover's Daily Report. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.